We are in Genesis chapter 9, picking back up with what happened after Noah and his family came off the ark. We know that Noah plants a garden. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Now we're going to see many similarities, and we've talked about the fact that the flood was actually a decreation and everything was washed and cleansed, and then we see the recreation. Well, you see on your handout here some parallels between the first creation and this recreation. There are many similarities between Noah and Adam. The spirit hovers over the deep in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 8. Both men are tenders of a garden. They fell by the fruit, one of a tree and one of the vine. Their nakedness was exposed and they're covered by another. Arthur Pink said, Adam's sin brought a terrible curse upon his posterity, and so did Noah's too. Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, the last of which was the one through whom the promised seed came. And here again, the analogy holds good, for Noah also had three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, the last mentioned being the one from whom descended the Messiah and the Savior. So we see this truly as a recreation, but we also see that the sin that was outside was also inside the ark because it's still within the very nature of Noah and his family. And we see that when we pick back up in reading verses 21 through 28. So Noah drank of the wine and became drunk. We just said he had planted a vineyard and un uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. That means the lowest of the low of servants. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we see what has happened here. He plants a vineyard, he drinks of the fruit of the vine, and he becomes drunk. Now there are theologians who differ in whether or not they had wine prior to the fall because in a controlled climate, maybe the grape juice didn't ferment like it did after the fall. We don't know, but I can't just excuse Noah's behavior because obviously if he was drinking it, he would be able to tell something was going on, and he drank himself, it sounds like, into a stupor, right? So we see that... Um, Sin is still present, and he's in his tent, and he uncovers himself. And Ham comes by, and his father's sin exposes the depravity of his own heart. Because instead of respectfully covering his father and doing what his brothers would do, he obviously went and told on his father with evidently some glee. And his brothers, Shem and Japheth, 
take something to cover their father, they back into the tent to not look at him and cover him up, thus respecting their father, covering his sin, which is what Jesus does for us. It's what we're to do for others. They were respectful of their father. But Noah's sin brought out the sin that was in Ham's own heart. And therefore comes this curse not just on Ham, but on Canaan, on his descendants. And most believe that it was literally just a prophetic pronouncement because God curses Ham, first actually really Canaan, his descendants, but he blesses Shem and the God of Shem, setting them apart. They would be the Jews, the Semites, and then Japheth, the Gentiles, who would be blessed through the Jews and would dwell in their tents. So we see this was prophetic. Now, wine is mentioned here for the first time in Scripture, and it's in ill repute. It produced drunkenness and shame and brought to the surface the vile passions that surged in the soul of Ham. That's from John Phillips' commentary. Arthur Pink says it's surely significant and designed as a solemn warning that the first time wine is referred to in the Scriptures, it's found associated with drunkenness, shame, and a curse. Now, obviously, I can't tell you that the scripture says do not drink, but it has a lot of prohibitions about being drunk. And it's what we do in excess that gets us in trouble. If you've got your Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 5, and I want us to look at 15 through 20. This gives us a New Testament passage that makes reference to or allows us to understand what's happening here in Genesis Verse 15 says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So we're walking in the midst of evil days. Paul was writing the church in Ephesus. They lived in the midst of an evil Roman empire. And the city of Ephesus had a lot of witchcraft, of divining, a lot of, uh, of pagan idol worship. And so the people were living in a wicked time, just as we are. And he's telling them, be very careful how you walk in this wicked culture. And then he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of God? He's going to tell us. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, that is excess, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. So what's the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? You're going to be filled with joy, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. So you're going to express gratitude in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Dissipation, it literally means both the wastefulness and the lack of self-control implied by this word are things which should not be seen in the lives of those who have found in Christ the source and the way of wisdom. That's from Francis Folk's commentary on Ephesians. Think about the sins in our own culture that have become socially acceptable. Think about the young people in college and young adults who will not post a picture on Instagram unless they have a wine glass in their hand or a solo cup. Why? Because they're wanting to fit in. They're wanting to look like the rest of culture. Think about the young people and older ones as well who are immoral in their relationships, who don't think anything about the hookup culture. And yet what does God say? Marriage, physical intimacy is to be 
reserved for the marriage relationship, and it's literally the sign of the covenant of the man and the woman coming together, covenanting with God as God makes them one. You know, those driving our media culture are very aware that they can push acceptance of these sins through repetition and exposure. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lie, says, while the church is not an ethnic minority, and he says it's important for me to clarify that, we are what sociologists call a cognitive minority, meaning as as followers of Jesus, our worldview and value system and practices and social norms are increasingly at sharp odds with those of our host culture. We face constant pressure from both the left and the right to assimilate and follow the crowd. Truly, to have an influence on the culture, we must be different from the culture. We are to walk as a wise person. We are to walk in the midst of a wicked culture, understanding the times in which we live. And we do that by immersing ourselves in the word of God and choosing on a daily basis to ask the Lord to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Now, it's not a coincidence here that he's contrasting drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit. Because in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon those assembled in the upper room and they come out speaking the gospel, the word of God in the languages and dialects of all the people, there were some that were listening and were amazed, but there were others that said, they're just drunk. Because Peter dresses it when he steps up to preach. And he says, no, we're not drinking. It's just the third hour. It's nine o'clock in the morning. That's not what's going on here. In fact, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us just like it was prophesied by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And so we're seeing this contrast. Paul is sharing that picture. That would have been a very real picture in their mind. They would have known that's what he's referring to. Because when you're drunk, you're under the influence or the control of the alcohol. And it can literally cause you to be like Noah, to pass out, right? To be ineffective, unable to react, respond. But for most people, it just makes them walk funny and talk funny and react differently. But when you're filled with the Spirit, now think about the contrast. We're supposed to walk differently, talk differently, react differently. It's an obvious contrast. Are you, am I, walking different, talking different, and reacting differently than the world? Or do we so fit in with the world that we walk like them and talk like them, and react like them. If we are, we're not doing what God has commanded us to. We're not being careful how we're walking. We're being unwise instead of wise. We've got to make the most of our time because the days are evil. We need to be aware that God has told us how we're to walk. We have our instructions in Scripture, and it's important that we submit to the Word of God. These words in Genesis were written by Moses to the Israelites before they went into the promised land. So it's very important they understood that the Canaanites were going to be their servants. And we see that in Joshua and Judges, that's exactly what plays out. Exactly what God prophesies through Noah will take place. Now let's do a little bit of personal application. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that takes place 
as we immerse ourselves in God's word and submit ourselves to it. We start obeying it, right? Well, in Rich, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, B-I-L-L-O-D-A-S, his book, The Deeply Formed Life, he uses the illustration of an iceberg. And he says, the iceberg brings to mind the goal of spiritual formation in Christ, namely that Jesus wants to form his life in us. Significantly, about 90% of an iceberg remains unseen beneath the surface. Do you see that iceberg? Look at the amount that's under the surface of the water and the amount that's above the surface of the water. Jesus wants to transform our entire beings, not just the 10% that shows. Yet Christianity in the Western world is often marginalized as a life accessory rather than the means of powerful life transformation. It's like when we go to India on a mission trip and we're explaining to a Hindu the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many Hindus are more than happy to add Jesus to their other gods because that's what they do. They want to appease all the gods. So they're happy to add another gods to their plethora of gods that they already acknowledge and worship. But we have to tell them, no, to follow Jesus, you have to do away with all other gods. And God, Yahweh, is the only true God. And you worship him and him only. We have to come to that point in our own lives that we choose to worship God Not popularity, not our family, not our spouse, not our children, not our station in life, not where we live, not where our kids go to school. None of those things can be preeminent in our lives because none of them will satisfy. Only Jesus satisfies. And we must be who he's called us to be before we can do what he's called us to do. And that means we've got to go under the surface, right? We've got to let God do some work of transformation in the way we think and in what our heart longs for and desires. And we need to set our mind and our hearts on things above, not on things on this earth. And when we think about what we really value, what we're seeking shows us what we really love. Am I really seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? If I will focus my inner being on the Lord and being obedient to his word, the outward man will align. But I've got to go below the surface. I don't want to just focus on the 10% that everybody sees. It's like a highly filtered picture on Instagram. It's not real. It's not real. I want to ask you from this day forward to choose not to pretend. Because if we're going to be shaped into Christ's likeness, we have to choose to stop pretending. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Be who God has created you to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you will do that, you will experience a level of freedom that you probably are unaware even exists. You will experience a freedom from others' opinions of you, a freedom from others' value system, because suddenly you have fallen so deeply in love with Jesus that your passion and heart's desire is to glorify him and everything else pales in comparison. It really will fall away. We were asked some questions this week 
in our study, and I hope each of you spent some time thinking about them. Because as we're going through our workbook, it's easy to flip by these things and just answer them to fill them in so that you're not embarrassed when you're in your small group and you open your workbook and there's no writing in there, right? <laughs> so you want, you're going to put something down, whether you pause long enough to think about it or not. But I paused on these questions this week, and I want us to walk back through them together. And we need to ask ourselves, the first one was, am I walking in righteousness? Now, how do I do that? Well, go back to Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If I make him first, if I'm seeking him, and you know what? When he commands us to seek, what does that tell us? We're going to find him, right? Or really, he's going to find us. <laughs> Jeremiah says the same thing. You'll find me when you seek for me with all your heart. So when we seek him and we seek his kingdom, that means when we do it, he will be found. He will reveal himself to us. Then the second one, am I living a blameless life? That's a word we've used a lot in women's ministry. You know, you could give me the definition, most of you, because you've heard me say it so many times. It's not walking in perfection but it's with all revealed sin confessed. That's how you're blameless. I can only confess what God has revealed to me as sin. And obviously, the longer you walk with the Lord, we know the obvious outward ones, but God begins to peel away the interior when we get below the surface of the iceberg, and he begins to show us attitudes and motives and things we've been clinging to to make us feel better about ourselves. And God says, release it to me. And let me be your identity. Find your worth in me and only in me. And then he will bless us with everything else we need. He promises that. And then are there sins in my life, seen or unseen, that I need to confess, repent, and renounce? I want to encourage you to think on that one this week. And even right now, if God brings one to mind, if the Holy Spirit shines his light on something you've been kind of trying to keep below the surface, I want to encourage you to reach out to either your small group leader or a trusted Christian friend. Because James 5.16 tells us we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Do you know that sin actually deforms our soul? And for us to be healed in our soul, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions, we have to confess our sins to one another. And quite often, we want to do it just between us and God, right? <laughs> we don't really want somebody else to know. But are we really dealing with it, and are we really forsaking it if we're not willing to confess it and bringing out, bring it out into the light with someone else? The scripture tells us to do that. It's like then we're really being accountable. I'm trusting you with this information, this sin I've tried to keep under the surface, and God has shown me you can't continue to grow and be formed into Christ's likeness until you bring this out into the open, confess it, forsake it, and get forgiven of it. And when I confess it to someone else and I pray with them over it, now I'm accountable to them, but also it loses its hold. It is a spiritual truth that when I bring it out into the light and present it to someone else, it's amazing how then I look at it and think, why did I have such a hard time with that? Why did I try to hold that in the dark? Why did I allow myself to be tormented by the enemy by hanging on to this? God is saying, confess it. Pray with someone about it. 
so that it no longer has a hold on you, so that God can continue to work and work and work below the surface to make you into a Christ-like follower, one who looks like Jesus so that you can have the greatest impact in this world in the days in which we live and the number of days he's given you on this planet. You want them all to count. I want mine to count. And then the last one was, if I died today, would others recognize that I finished well? More importantly, would God say so? Are you fulfilling his plan for your life? Are you completing what it is he's created you to fulfill within his kingdom until he comes or you see him face to face? But also, we have another responsibility to one another that if any of us is caught in a sin or trespass, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If you have a a friend, another believer, and you see them going into sin, go after them. That's what the parable of the sheep is all about, where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one that's wandered away. That's what Matthew 18, we call it church discipline, but it's really retrieving the lost one. It's going after them. First by yourself and they won't listen, you take somebody with you because you're trying to draw them back to to the Savior because the enemy is luring them out onto that path that leads to destruction because his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. His end game is our destruction. So we go after the one who's caught in a sin. We don't turn our backs on them. We don't shame them. We don't cancel them for heaven's sake. We go after them. It's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't leave us. He comes after us. And we must do the same if we're going to be like him. And we have to stay on guard. Because I guarantee you, after a spiritual victory, we sometimes drop our guard and then we set ourselves up for a fall. Because what do we know about the enemy? First Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We are to seek first the kingdom of God because we have a very real enemy who is seeking to devour us. So we must choose Christ on a daily basis. Noah stood steadfast for over a hundred years, building a boat, more than likely being mocked and ridiculed. And after the flood, when the pressure was off, is when he fell. Think about Elijah. He's an obvious Old Testament example. He defeats 450 prophets of Baal in a showdown on Mount Carmel. Not only that, kills them all. And then one wicked woman says she's coming after him. And what does he do? He runs and hides. Why? He was a pooped prophet. (laughs) He was exhausted. (laughs) Be careful when you're exhausted. You know, people talk about um, halt. What is it? Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. I think, you know, be careful when that happens because you're setting yourself up to be a victim of the one who's seeking someone to devour. That's why we need rest. We need to build margin into our lives so that we have time on a daily basis to refuel spiritually through the word, And prayer as we spend time in the presence of God and daily asking him to fill us 
with his Holy Spirit. We are filled initially at the point of salvation, but it's obvious by Scripture and its instruction that we're to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit because as you go out into the day, you're having to pour out. You're pouring out as you love your spouse, as you take care of your children, as you go out into the community, as you interact, as you serve, as you minister, you are pouring out. And if there's nothing to pour out, guess what? (laughs) You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. That's why we have to guard our time with the Lord and make sure we are replenishing what we are pouring out. The spiritual disciplines literally are spiritual warfare. The daily denying of self and submitting myself to God's word and then his will and prayer empowers my victory. It isn't what you do in a day, but what you do daily that develops your character, who you really are. You know, something else that was pointed out in our Bible study this week was that holiness could be a lonely place. And I want to especially address some of you moms and grandmoms in here, and you've set some standards of Christian behavior in your home, things that you will allow and you won't allow to come into your home. I just want to encourage you, stand firm. Stand firm on those things. I remember what that was like, and I recognize it's much tougher right now even than it was when we were raising our children. But I know there were times that everybody was going to see a movie, and my mom was taking them when they were in the ninth grade. And we met, and when I asked the mom what they were going to, she was taking all these boys and girls to see a rated R movie. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry, but my ninth grade boy won't be doing that. (laughs) And we had to go home. There were times that we had to make hard decisions. And you know what? It makes you look like the bad guy. But when your children are grown, they're going to be thankful that you made those stands and you stood firm on what the word says. Now, try to say yes as much as you can. If it doesn't go against God's word, open your home, allow them to come in, be the one that drives, do some fun things with them, provide food for them, do those things that you can do. Say yes as much as you can so that when you have to say no and make a firm stand, it's not like you always say no. I tried to be the house that was always open. The kids could always spend the night in. We'd all, I would always feed them. I kept the, And yes, it cost to keep your refrigerator and pantry stocked. But I, I just remember Bethany's friends, there were about five of them that hung out together all through high school. And because everybody else was grown and gone by the time she hit high school, they could all just come hang out. And they loved going in and pulling stuff out of our pantry and refrigerator. And I loved it. I loved that they were comfortable enough there that it felt like home, that they could make themselves at home there. Be that home. You also have the opportunity when you do that to not only get to know your children's friends, but to also speak truth into their lives as well. And you want to impact them because we're responsible for all those that God allows to come in to our sphere of influence. And we're responsible for pointing them to Jesus Christ. When we get into Genesis chapter 10, we get into the table of nations and there are 70 nations listed And we're going to go into this a little bit more in detail next week because actually the table of nations comes after the Tower of Babel. Um, But S.J. Cole, as was quoted in our workbook this week, said, if Christians would stop to ponder the implications of this rather dry 10th chapter of Genesis, racial prejudice would be dissolved. We would understand we all come from Noah and his wife. We all come from the same people. And when languages were confused and people were scattered all over the earth, the level of melanin in our skin changed. But we're all the same. We are all related. We are all created by God, created in his image. And we are to love everyone with the love of Jesus Christ because every single person has unbelievable value 
because of being created in the very image of God. No person is excluded from the gift of receiving Christ, and no Christian is excluded from the command to share him. We are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are commanded to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And the obvious question that we ended our study with this week was, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Do you remember the last of the reflective questions we talked about? It said, if I died today, would others recognize that I finished well? More importantly, would God say so? I have a dear friend that is right now in between this world and the next. You know her. Her name is Charlotte Guffin. She was here and did our women's ministry kickoff and led us in worship. We have been friends for 30 years. Just a couple of weeks after being here, she had a stroke-like episode, and they took her to the hospital, and she was diagnosed with metastasized melanoma with six brain tumors. One of the brain tumors uh, has grown by the brain stem and is bleeding. And so she had a stroke-like symptoms again, was taken to the hospital, and she was moved yesterday afternoon to palliative care. They basically said there is no recovery. Now we know God is more than able. He can speak the word and heal her here or heal her in his presence. But I want to tell you something. She, if she is finishing, has finished well. She points everyone to Jesus. And when we first moved to Gardendale, she was one of my very first friends. In fact, I was painting our house when the kids were in school and painting the whole inside of the house. And she came over one day to volunteer to paint. She said, for those who know me, don't tell anybody that you're letting me help do this. They would think you're crazy that you're letting me help paint your house. But she became a friend immediately because of her incredible love for the Lord. Her mother died of cancer when she was 16. Um, she is not had an easy life, but she has honored the Lord regardless of her circumstances. She has shown and proved him to be faithful. And when probably 25 or 26 years ago, I was having my quiet time and I was reading about Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And it was that moment the Holy Spirit just enveloped me and said, take out a sheet of paper, put a column with Mary's name and a column with Martha's, Martha's name and write down everything you see about these two women every time they're with Christ, and it's three times in Scripture, in Luke and in John, that we see them with Jesus. All three times, Mary was at the feet of Jesus. And in Luke 10, what does Jesus say when he's rebuking Martha for getting on to Jesus, for not telling Mary to come help her in the kitchen? <laughs> he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by so many things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary has found it, and it will not be taken away from her. I called Charlotte that day. <laughs> crying like this. <laughs> You're such a Mary. I'm such a Martha. I want to have the heart of Mary. <laughs> and that became the prayer of my heart, that I would have the heart of Mary. Because Mary is the one God talked to. <laughs> Mary is the one who anointed him before his burial. She's the one who broke that alabaster alabaster jar and anointed his head and his feet. It's recorded for us in John and in Mark, and it tells us Jesus acknowledged she's anointing me beforehand for burial. When his disciples were denying it and refusing to believe, Mary heard, Mary understood, and Mary did the most extravagant thing she knew to do. She poured it out on Jesus. And I can't help but believe when he was being beaten and flogged that the aroma of that ointment in his hair reminded him of her sacrifice. 
That's Charlotte. Oh, how I desire to live like that. Are you finishing well? Just a few weeks ago, she thought she was perfectly healthy. None of us is promised another day. So the question stands, what are you doing about it? And it was so interesting when I read that this week because that's exactly the question the Lord asked me in 2012 when I was praying over the city and praying for the children of our city. And the Lord said, this is your city. These are your children. What are you doing about it? (laughs) So when I read that again this week, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I know this question. And I said, Lord, I don't know. It feels really overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. And Arasuri was birthed out of just that prayer of God saying, what are you doing about it? And so I'm asking you this morning, what is it God is wanting to birth in you and through you? What are you doing about it? Are you fully sold out? Are you really living for Jesus? Are you accomplishing what he wants for you to accomplish? This weekend is Bellevue's Love Offering. It's all focused on mission. On missions here in the nation and the nations. What is God calling on you to give? He's calling on all of us to pray. Is he calling you to go? Some of us, he's calling to go. As as things open back up and we're able to travel again, where does God want you to go? Because when you go, you encourage the missionaries that are serving, but also the locals, because what you're saying is, you're important enough for me to leave my life of comfort at home to come and serve you in the name of Jesus Christ. So there's incredible value in going. We have many Bellevue Los Memphis partners all across the city you can get involved in, but I want to get a date on your calendar. November the 5th of 2022, we are going to be hosting here at Bellevue, She Loves Out Loud Global. You can go to shelovesoutloud.org, and I've asked them to pull it up uh, so that you can see the website. Yes, look at that beautiful heart with the world on it. Isn't that great? We are literally calling the women of the world to prayer. We are partnering with international ministries, like our International Mission Board, um, we're Wycliffe Bible Translators, Open Doors, One More Child. That One More Child has over a thousand international churches that they're partnering with, and all of them are going to be involved with this because it will be live streamed from Bellevue, and women will be engaging around the world. You are going to be hearing personal testimonies of women who are on the front lines around the world, and we will have times of corporate prayer for them as we call the women to prayer and to action. Charity Gale is coming in, and we're going to have a citywide choir. Effie Johnson and Ginger Whitehorn are going to be assembling that choir for us. Jen Wilkin will be here to be our keynote speaker. And I'm just so excited about the way God is pulling all of this together. And then we're also going to be inviting some local, national, and international ministries to actually set up booths, much like our mission fair, all over the the church. Women will be coming in everywhere, so when registration goes up, we'll tell you guys first, because we, I want you to be here. I believe God is moving and working in such a way that this is going to be a monumental moment spiritually for us as women. Not only that, the Lord allowed Robert Lewis, the founder of Fellowship Churches and of Men's Fraternity, to contact me last spring and ask if I would be willing to do the women's version of a curriculum, and it would be on biblical womanhood. They have done one called Better Man for Men. It's an 11-week curriculum, and it is blessing and changing men's lives. Well, 
Robert has mentored a pastor, Kyle Reno, and his wife, Katie, for the last five or six years. And they said, you need to contact Donna Gaines because I have no association with, with Robert at all. So we Zoomed last spring. He asked me about it. It was so interesting because I had just taught on biblical womanhood at Catalyst for our youth. I had been asked to speak on at Downline on biblical womanhood. <clears throat> so I thought, okay, Lord, there's a little theme going here. <laughs> I will pray about this. And so in the midst of everything else we have going on, it's not like I need another project. So I really needed to hear from the Lord on this. So I started praying. And I mean, it was like God just confirmed it over and over. Well, God put together a team of 10 women, and we met in Little Rock in August. We prayed through it. God gave it all to us. It's going to be called Real Woman, Rediscovering God's Good Design. And our goal, if you would add this to your prayer list as well, is to have that curriculum ready to be rolled out at this November 5th event. There will be four different women um, teaching the 11 sessions, so there will be video teaching as well as a Bible study content looking at what it means to be a woman according to God's design in our current culture. We need that. We need it for our young women, but we need it for all of us. So God is, put, yes, God is putting together some tremendous opportunities for us as women. Now, what does this say to me personally? God is on the move. To be putting all this together at the same time our Lord is moving. Things are being put into place, I believe, for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are on mission, on mission, and we don't have a moment to waste.